Hey, kids, Miss Phillips is over there ready to take you out to children's worship. Okay, we've been looking, we have been looking over the last few months at the book of Ruth. Uh, Today we're at Ruth chapter 3, verses 14 through 18. That text is printed in the bulletin. And uh, one of the things I realized as I started reading this text uh, at the the 9 o'clock service is there are no names in this text. It's just he and she. And so if you haven't been here, you're not going to know who the he is or the she is in this or who the mother-in-law is which is most important. Um, So uh, the she at the beginning of the text is Ruth. Uh, The he is Boaz. And uh, the mother-in-law is Naomi. So some of you are like, we already know that. But some of you don't. Some of you haven't been here. And so suddenly when you jump in on this text, you may be thinking, who's he talking about? And what's this about laying at feet? So uh, we'll get get to all of that. Um, But just just to kind of orient you. Uh, to what's happening, and uh, we'll do a quick review uh, after, after I read the text as well. So Ruth chapter 3, verses 14 through 18, uh, this is the word of God. We should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it. And he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? And then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Um, years ago, I preached a sermon where we uh, uh, looked at uh, the barren women in Jesus Christ's genealogy. Now, if you think about that for a second, you have to think, well, they, they, they might have been barren, but how did they get in the genealogy if they had kids, right? And so what, what, you, what you see about that is, is that uh, consistently in the Old Testament, consistently in the scriptures, God takes what is not and makes it something. God takes... Uh, barren women, ah, there's my pen, takes barren women and uh, gives them children. Um, very hopeful, very wonderful uh, theme, very wonderful text. Somebody came to me after uh, that sermon and said, that's terrible, just terrible. I would have felt better if all of those women ended up barren. That would have squared more with my reality. And I didn't know what to say. I still don't know what to say, except to say, really? That's what you want. You want the end of the word, the last thing, to be emptiness and barrenness. 
Do you get some kind of satisfaction out of that? Now, I've been there before. I know what, I know what they were talking about. I know that, that in bitterness and angst and anger and deprivation, sometimes we get a weird sense of self-justification and self-righteousness from the fact that, and this is really bleak and dark, but I, I, I can say this because I've experienced this myself, where you can say, see, he's not good. Really? And it's just a matter of grin and bear it and get through this and God will get you to heaven. But everything in between is terrible. Right? So, so one of the things that you have to see about uh, the book of Ruth, uh, and I'm, I'm going to be very direct and bold about this, it has a happy ending. Uh, Hemingway said that... Uh, uh, all uh, true stories end in death. Well, he might have won the Nobel Prize for literature, but he's wrong. He's wrong. Uh, because the, the fact of the matter is, while there, there's certainly no uh, uh, place for us to deny uh, the reality of death, uh, as I said a couple of weeks ago, while that's true, God gets not only the last word, but the last laugh. And so we will see at the end of this story in a couple of weeks where Naomi is seated with the women of the town, delighting in the birth of a grandchild. Uh, uh, the bitter, empty woman filled with joy. Right? So, so one of the things that we're going to look at today is just the whole point of this story of redemption that we see in Ruth. And so I came across this quote this week, but I, I, I edited it and changed it to, be, to, to better fit where we are. So taken as a whole, the story of Ruth is a sign to us in grief about the intentions of our God. And that's an important thing to understand. Not just what happens and not just how it happens, but what is the intent behind that? Because remember, one of the things that is great about Naomi, even in her bitterness, she understands that it is God with whom she must deal. That what has happened to her has come to her from the hand of God. And so the issue is not is there a God and not does this God control uh, the affairs of life, but what is his intent? What is his heart? What is his meaning and what is his direction in this, right? So it was written to give us encouragement and hope that all the devastating and mystifying events in our lives are going somewhere good. Now, I, I want to be clear about this. The fact that we say that these things are going somewhere good does not change the fact that devastating and mystifying events happen in our lives. Um, the original author of this quote said they do not lead off a cliff and left and left that as a sentence. But I disagreed with that uh, because I believe I have been let off a cliff periodically. <laughs> um, uh, these circumstances and these uh, uh, issues, they, they uh, do not lead off a cliff. But if they do, this is Steve Shelby here, Jesus is there to catch us. <laughs> okay. 
Because there have been a few times where I'm like, you know, life feels a lot like that thing people did back in the 90s called bungee cord jumping, where for the largest part of that experience is free fall. But the, the, the reality and the thing that gives you confidence and joy in the midst of that is that you get caught, Right? And so in all the setbacks of our lives as believers, God is working to fill us, protect us, and redeem us. And so whatever else may be said in our lament, whatever else may be said in our grief, whatever else may be said in our brokenness, our temptation, our, our bitterness even, our emptiness even, we must say that what this story tells us and what this text tells us illustrates for us the, the, the glory of the gospel and what the glory of the gospel is not just a, a holy God redeeming sinners for his own glory, which is profound and powerful, but it is a holy God redeeming sinners for his glory and for his and our joy. That the end of the story, the end of eternity ends in joy. And if that is the arc of our lives, if that is the trajectory of our lives, how does that shape how we understand the intentions of our God in the midst of providences and events that are dark and deeply lamentable and disturbing? So how do we walk through these things in some sense of Facing the reality of a broken and hard and difficult and often dark world, knowing, knowing the end. So it's good for us to know that the story ends in fullness and joy. <laughs> and, and, and that doesn't, that doesn't mean that the journey to the end of the story is, is meaningless or unimportant. It matters. But I can, It changes the way I walk through this world if I understand, as hard as this is, my God is a redeemer in Jesus Christ. So what I want us to do this morning is to look at three things that jump out of note in this passage. First, a concern for reputation. Secondly, a concern for fullness. And lastly, a concern for faithfulness. Now, the, this thing about reputation may seem, well, that's a little, that's a little out of whack there, but this, this is an important thing for us to understand because, uh, one of the things that, that you have to see and one of the evidences of Boaz's character, his integrity, but also his love for Ruth is the fact that he cares for her physically. Not only does for seven or eight weeks now in the harvest has he protected her and allowed her to glean and actually pulled out extra uh, sheaves out of the grain for for she and uh, Naomi to eat, but he's very concerned about what people think of her. Now, now you may think about this and you may think, well, that's kind of a that, that's kind of an off one off kind of thing. You know what 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 matters about that? Well, Boaz. Uh, reflects the work of God in his life in the fact that he is first and foremost concerned to care for Ruth and Naomi. But right up there with that is his desire to protect her reputation. Next slide, please, Liz. So um, one of the things that you have to see about the story and one of the kind of backgrounds and sidelights of the story, and one of the reasons why I love it is it happens in a small town. It happens in Bethlehem. 
like Mayberry, right? <laughs> you know, a small town where everybody knows everybody. Where many of these people have probably lived together and known one another for years and years and years. Um, one, one of the things that we realized this week, one of the things Marty and I were laughing about is we've lived in, come uh, May, we will have lived in Richmond, Virginia, 31 years. She has a colleague at school that she teaches with who Marty helped potty train. We were just laughing about that this week. And uh, if we ever thought we're not old, that's devastating proof that, uh, <laughs> that we're old. But one of the things that you realize about that is you have history with people. You, you see the trajectory of people's lives. You, you see the work of God in their lives. And one of the things that, that you get about that is you know these people and they know you. And one of the things that you do with your friends is you talk. Now, one of the ways that I believe that the, the truthfulness of this story and, and the reason why it rings out true to me is because so much about what happens in this story, so much of what goes on here is about what people say about each other, which, which totally reflects the way villages and the way churches and the way families work because we talk about each other. Now, now what I want you to see about this is how, how, how important and uh, how what we say about each other matters, right? So when, when Ruth and Naomi are returning from Moab, it says when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. What does it mean that they were stirred? They're talking about them. Look who's back. There's Naomi. There's Ruth. They come back, right? They're talking, you know, like we do. And they didn't have Facebook. They didn't have Instagram. They didn't have Snapchat. They didn't have... Whatever the latest one is. But they were all about this, communicating with each other about what happened, right? And the women of the town said, is this Naomi? They're talking. They're stirred. Everybody's talking about what's going on, right? Next slide. Um, when Ruth first meets Boaz, what does Boaz say about her? Her reputation has preceded her. Boaz says to Ruth, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. Right? Ruth, Ruth, Ruth has a reputation already. People in town are talking about her and they're saying, wow, look at this Moabite girl. She must really love Naomi because Naomi's bitter. And, and, and she came all this way to be with her and, and look, Look, she's caring for her. She's, she's with her, right? So, so they've talked about this. They've, they've, they've been very clear about what's, what's happening. And then he goes on to say, for all my fellow townsmen know that you're a worthy woman. How do they know? How does he know that they know she's a worthy woman? Because they're talking about it. Just like us. We're talking, right? So, so one of the things that I think is profound about this is, so when, when Boaz finds Ruth sleeping at, the, at his feet, and after he covers her up, and they get up in the morning, very early in the morning, before the sun fully gets up, he's like, don't let anybody know you were here. Not because anything weird happened or anything inappropriate happened, but because Boaz is zealous for Ruth's reputation. He is zealous that people would respect her, that, that, that her name and her honor would be valued in the community. 
Now, on the one hand, one of the things that we have to say about reputation is we are of no reputation. We've already said today that all we have to boast in is Christ. And as an individual, as I think of myself and I think of the way I live my life and who I am, the only boast I have is that Jesus Christ loved a sinner like me. But that does not preclude me from boasting in the work of Jesus Christ in you. It does preclude me from not being a defender of your reputation. My job, your job, with one another, with your enemies, and with your friends, is not just to speak the truth about them, but to guard their reputations. That is one of the ways people know that we love one another. That is one of the ways that we know that we care for one another, is that we are careful to protect the reputations of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And in a small community, even though there's this looks like a decent crowd, uh, those of us who know one another, those of us who watch one another, those of us who talk with one another and talk about one another, need to be very careful that this zeal for the honor and the dignity of our fellow believers be maintained in what we say. Um, one, one of the things that I, my favorite moment in every political campaign is when somebody asks political opponents, when they're standing up on the stage with each other and have just called each other horrible names, said terrible things about one another, and the commentator says, can you say one good thing about your opponent? <laughs> I love that. And I love to watch them struggle to come up with something good to say. I think that's, to me, that's, in some ways, that's the most important moment of, of a campaign. Let's see what they, let's see what they come up with, right? So, so the, the thing is, don't stop talking about each other. You need probably to talk more about each other. You need to highlight more and more. Everybody knows that that woman or that man matters to God and that God uses them. We need to have that more and more on our lips. Uh, and that's one of the ways that, that, that this text is so encouraging because the recognition of it is, you know, people are going to talk. The issue is, what are people going to talk about? So I think, I think this is an important thing. And just one more note about this. If you had been lurking around the threshing floor that morning and you had seen Ruth get up and seen Boaz lay that food on her and seen her go back in the darkness to her mother-in-law's house, you would, you would have been truthful by going to the women of the village or the men of the village and saying, guess what I saw this morning? You would have told the truth. Good for you. You would have told the truth and you would have wrecked someone's reputation. Boaz, as our Redeemer, as a picture to us of Christ, shows us 
the zeal of God for the reputations of his people. It's a good thing. Think about that. Second point, uh, fullness, right? Now, one of the things that uh, is so profound in this text and one of the great stories and one of the great kind of play on words in this text is what Boaz says to Ruth. You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. So, so one of the that, that may just be kind of a, a sentence that just lingers out there. But but the fact is, the writer of the book of Ruth uses a particular set of words when he describes this because he wants to remind us of something that was said earlier in the book. Next, next slide, slide, please, uh, um, Liz. So the book of Ruth is all about the transition from emptiness to fullness. From famine, which is at the beginning of the book, to abundance. From bereavement and childlessness to marriage and children. Now, Naomi has told the women of the town, I went out full and empty did the Lord bring me back. So do you see the play on words here between I don't want to send you back to your mother-in-law empty, so I'm going to fill you up with this with this grain, right? So this is exactly the same language that Naomi used. And so what Boaz is doing is I'm not going to let you go back empty. I'm going to make sure that you, you go back full. So I went out full and empty did the Lord bring me back. And now the same word appears in Ruth's report of what Boaz said. The fullness of the shawl that he fills up with the grain Bearing barley is a hint of the fullness of offspring and life that Ruth will enjoy and bring to Naomi. So what you have to see here is, is that there's, there's a, a, a big, uh, uh, shift in the story. Uh, this story began with famine and a time of the judges when men in Israel did whatever they wanted to do. There was no king. There's famine. This, this family has to go out of the country to Moab and they're there for years and all that they experience in Moab is death and barrenness. And so now suddenly these women who have come back are in this dire situation where Naomi is so broken and so crippled by her grief, she's unable to do anything except give voice to her bitterness and Ruth has to go out and glean. And as we said a couple of weeks ago, she's been gleaning in these fields now for probably seven or eight weeks. She's probably been at this a, a, a couple of months. And one of the things that you have to see about this is, is that as the harvest has come to an end, there's nothing left to glean. How are they going to make it? How are they going to eat? How are they going to work, uh, live uh, in this community? And so when Boaz takes from that grain there on the threshing floor and fills up Ruth, he's not just giving a symbolic gift to her. He's supplying what they need. He, he's, he's giving them what they need for that day with the promise that he will continue to provide them with what they need. And so one of the things that, that you have to see about this is, is that the gospel is not simply about getting us a good life or a better life. The gospel, the work of Jesus Christ is not simply about getting us even through this hard and this difficult life. The, 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 the work of Jesus Christ for us is a work of fullness, it is a work of filling, it is a work of abundance on our behalf. And one of the things that we miss about that is, is that we minimize and we shrink the work of Christ for us and what it is that he has for us and where it is he takes us. What's happening here in this story is these people who are broken and sad and undone by the circumstances of their lives are now being cared for, being redeemed and being provided for in rich 
and abundant ways. Not just that I don't want you to go away empty-handed. I want to give you a little bit. I want you to go away full. Now, now one of the things that you have to see about this is, is, is that um, this, is, <laughs> this is just a, a, an, an abundance. When was the last time you thought about God and his grace and his mercy and his provision to you that it comes in abundance? It's hard to think about that. When times are hard, our times are challenging, our times are difficult. We'd rather kind of protect ourselves in some sort of cynical bitterness and turned in on ourselves than think of the fact that our God loves joy, that our God loves fullness. He loves to supply needs. And not only does he do that, that this, this, this fullness and this abundance that he gives is intended certainly for his glory, but also for our joy. I I don't know what God you worship. I don't know how you think about him. You probably, for some of you, you think of him as a celestial killjoy. Some of you probably think of him as a very stern, angry father. Some of you probably think of him as a a tolerant grandfather who doesn't really care what happens as long as everybody has a good time. Right. I don't I don't know what you may where you may be thinking about that. But one of the clear witnesses of the Bible is that God loves a good party. Loves a good party. Now, that may that may sound weird. That may sound scary that um, that that's true. How many times do you see in the Gospels Jesus at a party? How many times in the Gospels do you see Jesus at a dinner party? How many times in the Gospels do you see him gathered with people having a good time? A lot. Ah, but that's just Jesus in the Gospels. Okay. All right. That's fair. What's the end of the Bible? What's eternity? A marriage feast of the Lamb. It's a party. I hope it's a party. I'm planning on it being a party. <laughs> and I'm planning on having some great food. One of the things that you have to see about, uh, about this, one of the things that's communicated to us in the Gospels about Jesus Christ is, what's his first miracle? Changing water to wine at a wedding party. Now, their wedding parties went on for a week. A week. All right? Um. We just came off a wedding. And, um, you know, one of the things that you realize when, you, when, you're, when you're responsible for stuff at a wedding is you want everybody to have a good time. You want everybody to be, come away full. So, um, and I will say this as a sidelight. You know, I've done, I don't know, probably several hundred weddings in my ministry. And I will never think of them the same way again. Um, <laughs> And I have so much more sympathy now for the moms and the dads than I ever had before. Uh, Those of you who know me well know that my fundamental uh, commandment in all of life is don't be late. And so, of course, the rehearsal didn't get started on time. People were late. And I had to repent of taking it personally that people were late just to make me mad. Which worked. If they wanted to make me mad, it worked. 
So I sent Marty on from the rehearsal to the rehearsal dinner because that was our gig. I walked into the rehearsal dinner uh, venue late. My dad was standing there and he's like, well, it's it's good to see you. I'm glad you made it. (laughs) Thanks, dad. I know what his rule is, too. And so Marty comes up to me frantically saying, bad news, because things have started late. The caterer is only going to serve for 10 more minutes, and then they're leaving. They're packing up and leaving. And I'm like, well, half the wedding party's not here. What are we going to do? Well, it got taken care of, uh, and we had, we had a great, great party. It was a lot of fun. You don't want to run out of food or time or wine at a wedding. Jesus supplied that. He turned water into wine because they were thirsty. They had water. He turned water into wine for the joy of the wedding party. So it's not just a matter to us of the fact that our God just kind of gets us through this life. But the whole point of the redemption that Jesus Christ has for us, the whole point of God's creation and now his redemption and his renewal of all things is his glory. And his glory, certainly. But he is glorified in the gathering of his people in joy, enjoying all that Jesus Christ died to give. And so this picture that we have here is, is that the God we're talking about, wherever you may be in your circumstances, wherever darkness, whatever pit you may be in, whatever hole you may be in, whatever difficulty you may be in, whatever, however you may be experiencing barrenness, the promise of God and the accomplishment of Jesus Christ for us by his life, death, and resurrection is that he takes us to an eternity of fullness and joy. And those times and those moments in life where we experience a bit of fullness, a bit of joy, a bit of satisfaction here and now in him are simply pointers to the greater reality of what he has for us. Lastly, God's faithfulness. Naomi says uh, to, to Ruth, you know what? We don't have to worry about things now because the man, Boaz, will not rest until this matter is settled. One of the things that you have to see about the, the nature of God, we, we speak here every single Sunday and, 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 and God willing, there's not a, a five minute period that doesn't pass in our worship, that doesn't pass in our time together where the grace of God, the mercy of God, the gentleness of our God is not displayed and talked about and honored and glorified because those things are true and they matter. But we have to be careful when we talk about the mercy and the gentleness and the care of our God that we that we not lose sight of the fact that our God is determined. His face is set. His course is set. His his motion toward us in blessing and care and redemption is set. And the devil or your flesh Or the world will not stop his determination to redeem his people. He will not grow tired. He will not grow weary. He will pursue his people and he will accomplish their redemption. Nothing, nothing, nothing stops him 
from the fullness of his love, reaching us, changing us, redeeming us and taking us to be with him for eternity forever. You have to see that that not only is this God gracious, not only is he merciful, but he is relentless and untiring in his pursuit and his care and his his drivenness to redeem. Uh, one of the one of the great things about this time of, of year is you get to see a lot of football. And um, I know some of you hate that. And um, that's too bad. I like it. I like football. So uh, one of the things that I've noticed as I've watched some of these football games is uh, uh, what what if you if you if you've never played football, one of the things that you don't understand about it is it looks it looks I know it looks stupid and silly and uh, violent and all of those things. But really, it's not a competition between great athletes. It's not a competition against great coaches. It's a competition of will. It really is. And you can see it. Some teams give up. They just quit. They just quit. Even though they're still on the field and they're lollygagging around out there, they've quit. They really quit. My, when, I, when I played football, our coaches used to tell us, look, you know, at the beginning of the game, be a little fiercer, be a little harder, be a little more violent, and, and some of those guys on the other team will quit. They'll quit. They'll give up. Now, one of the ways you know that your coach is not God is when they don't quit and they smack you that way and you want to quit, <laughs> right? But, but the fact is, the, the, the reality is, that's true. And human beings quit all the time. In fact, that's one of the, one of the, one of the, one of the questions that, that, uh, uh, in faithfulness and love that we must ask one another periodically, like, please don't quit on me. Right? And you know what that means. You don't ever have to say that to Jesus Christ. You don't ever have to say to him, oh Lord, don't quit on me. Because he won't. And even when you want to quit on him, he doesn't quit. He pursues. If you belong to him, he's going to see you through to the end. He is going to provide for you. He will not rest until the redemption that he lived and died to give you comes to fullness and fruition in your life forever and ever. So, so the, so the thing that you have to see about this, one of the things that's great about Boaz is Naomi is depending upon his fierceness, upon his determination, and upon his dependability to actually accomplish the work that they must have him do. Because you see, they cannot redeem themselves. They cannot do something that will get themselves out of this. Boaz must do it for them, and they, Naomi sees and understands his character enough to know that he will, he'll finish. He won't rest until it's done. Our God's character is gracious and merciful and kind and gentle and fierce and determined. So determined. So determined. So dependable. So faithful that nothing or no one can stand in his way. I want to I ask you this morning, do you think you know someone or you know something that is stronger and more determined than him?
We act like it all the time, don't we? We do. But our Redeemer will not rest until the matter is settled. Praise God. Praise God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you today for uh, this truth. We thank you today for these, this beautiful love story. And we thank you for how it shows us and teaches us about your love and your care. Lord, help us to love you and to love one another by being zealous for one another's reputations. Help us uh, to um, know that the end of our story is not death, but abundance and joy in your presence forevermore. And help us today to see and to rest our hearts in the fact that you will not rest until our redemption is complete. Give us hope in that, we pray, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.